Good morning. Yesterday, my family and I were in southern Iowa for the funeral of my grandma on my dad's side of the family. And uh, the night before, so two days ago, uh, my grandma on my mom's side of the family died. Um, and so both of them lived in southern Iowa. So we were at funeral yesterday. We'll be going right back to the same funeral home this coming week. Um, both uh, were godly women who loved Jesus and were excited to see him. Uh, we know that their death uh, for them was gain um, because they're no longer suffering, uh, no longer experiencing pain. One was 95, one was 102, uh, and they were eager to see um, their Savior. Um, but for us, even, even when someone lives that long, when you love them, uh, death brings sadness and grief. Um, you feel the, the sense of loss. You're reminded that this world is broken. We're, we're longing for the day when death is no more. Um, between that and uh, a couple other circumstances that uh, God has in my life right now that feel heavy and difficult, uh, to be honest, at, at certain times this week, it was hard to focus, hard to be motivated to prepare for uh, this sermon, but in God's kindness, this, this passage that we're in today is exactly what I needed, um, and he used it to provide encouragement, to strengthen my faith, uh, to uh, push me on to trusting in some of the things that we were singing about today, that um, in my hurt, in my worst, my world falls down, not for a moment will he forsake us, um, because after all, he's constant, he's sovereign, um, even when we don't feel it, even when we don't see it, he is working. Um, chances are you uh, or someone who's sitting very close to you today or someone that you love is also going through circumstance right now that feels hopeless. It feels like maybe you've been praying for some kind of breakthrough for a long time. Maybe you've even stopped praying because it just you feel a sense of despair, like there is, there is no way out. Um, could be a job that just you dread, you hate, uh, that's just an unhealthy work environment, uh, or maybe longing for employment, uh, or a, a marriage that feels broken beyond repair. Um, your relationship with your kids, maybe in the home, or adult children, just feels fragile or distant or even estranged, um, mental health, physical health, financial struggles, the debt that just seems like there's no end in sight. Lots of different circumstances can tempt us to doubt, can tempt us to fear, tempt us to, to instead of leaning toward God in faith, to, to actually pull away from him in despair. And, and this story, the beginning of 1 Samuel, is, is a story of Hannah who's experiencing anguish. But actually, if you back out, it's the story of God's people who are in a really dark place, a place that feels, that feels a little helpless, that feels 
a little hopeless. And maybe you're, you're here today and, and no one knows you. Maybe it's your first time in this church or first time in any Christian church. And you don't even know why you're here for sure except that your world was falling apart. And so in your, dis, in your desperation, here you are. Um, whatever your circumstances are, my prayer is that God would help us through this passage to lean toward him in faith. If you, if you already have a faith, to, that it would be strengthened. If you, if you don't yet have faith in, in God, in Christ, that, that you'd move toward him, committing yourself to him, desiring to, to follow him, to, to trust him, because he is sovereign. He is working. I mentioned Hannah in this story. She's going to be the main character that we, that we look at and, and the desperation that she is feeling. But it's helpful, though, if, if you were reading this when, when it was first written, you're, you're Israelite, at some point in the future, you've got really bad kings, maybe, or, or maybe you're at the time of exile, and so again, you're, you're finding yourself at another place in the story of the Bible where things feel helpless. What, what you're actually going to get from Samuel is this, this big picture of how this God is faithful to his promises, this turning point in the history of his people. If you're new to the Bible, um, you might not realize about 75% of it happens before Jesus. Um, so you're here at a Christian church, and you know we, we worship Jesus, we worship Christ. A lot of the Bible is, is before he even came into this world, and that, that part of the Bible is, is pointing forward to him. So there's this history of people of God throughout the ages that were longing for a rescuer to come. And the whole Old Testament's pointing to that, how this, this promised Savior would come after sin and rebellion came un, into this world and began unraveling. And, and you go through Genesis 1 through 11, and it ends with, with just this rebellion all over the world. Um, and yet God then in Genesis 12, choosing Abraham and saying, okay, from you, I'm going to create a people that are going to be my people, living in my place, under my rule and blessing. But then that, that didn't fix everything. It continues to unravel. And God's, God's people end up in Egypt. And now they're enslaved for, for hundreds of years. And they're there. If you were one of them, again, you'd be looking at God saying, what are you doing? Are, are, we, are we without any Savior, without these promises that you've given us? But God sends a deliverer. They're rescued from Egypt. Uh, and then J uh, Joshua, through Second Kings, tells this story of God's people, how he is faithful, how he does move them into to his place. Uh, and they're going to be his people. Eventually, he's going to promise a king. But, but where we are right now, is right at the end of Judges. Uh, we, we heard this last week as we heard an overview of First and Second Samuel. The en Judges ends by saying, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was this time of moral depravity. And if you were, if you were one of the few that were following God, trusting in God, clinging to faith in him, you probably looked around at the tribes around you, the people around you, and thought, we're, we're helpless. 
we're hopeless. This, this situation doesn't seem, doesn't look anything like what God promised. We're, we're still longing for that king to come. And so it's in that dark situation that we begin to see light come. So we see Hannah move from anguish to adoration. Um, let's read this little story. We're going to see the, the whole theme of First and Second Samuel is that, is that we're called to, to trust God, to wait expectantly for his promised king, and to obey his word. You'll see that come up over and over again. All these different stories as, as God, we see, provides a king. This is a big turning point in the history of his people. He is going to provide a king for them. But we're called to trust him, to wait expectantly for his promised king to obey his word. And this little story points to some of those themes as well as we see Hannah and then Samuel being born. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 first of First. Samuel, if you're using the Bible that's in the chairs in front of you, it's page 233. There was a man from Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, first named Hannah and the second Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Wherever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah, to each of her sons and daughters, but he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her, because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying, her husband Elkanah would ask. Why don't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest, Eli, was sitting on a chair by the doorposts of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk. He said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord. Hannah replied, I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, go in peace. 
And may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. The problem surfaces quickly in this story. Uh, Elkanah has two wives. Just, just automatically right there, you see one of these examples in the Old Testament of, of polygamy. And sometimes that's pointed to and, and asked, was that okay? Was that something that God approved of? Was that something that changed later? But as you look at these stories in the Old Testament that are just giving the account of what time was like then, what was going on in those days, you don't see uh, the, the descriptions of polygamy leading toward the good and prosperous and happy and functional families. No, in every case you see dysfunction, you see the problems, you see the pain that happens there. Even Peninnah, who's going to be the bad guy, the bad woman in this story, you even feel bad for her. Because Elkanah is, is showing favoritism here for Hannah. We see this theme pop up uh, throughout Genesis, other places in the Bible. Um, when they go to, to sacrifice, this is a, a yearly thing that would happen. They would go to, to sacrifice, and then a portion of that sacrifice, they would, they would celebrate together and eat together. And, and when that time to eat came, Elkanah would give food to his family, Peninnah and all her children. And, and then it says a double portion to Hannah. Um, it's ironic because she's so depressed that she's not hungry, she's not eating, but he's loading up her plate, you know, with extra scoops of corn and potatoes and desserts and what, whatever it was that he was giving her, these, this double portion of food. And, and it was a, a way that he was showing his preferential love for her, even through her despair. He was in that time trying to show her kindness, but but you can see how that would that would just provoke Peninnah as well. But then Hannah here, all throughout this story, is just broken. Some of you have experienced the kind of pain she was experiencing, for the kind of circumstance, the kind of trial she was experiencing. And I don't just from friends and family how hard, how deeply painful that is. Um, in, in, in her day, in her culture, this was everything for her. For a woman, having children was, was in some ways all that society looked for women to do. Uh, and for her not to be able to do that, she felt worthless. She felt helpless. She felt broken. And she, she wasn't getting any kind of support from, from those around her. Peninnah here, it says, year after year would taunt her, throw this in her face. This wasn't just a, a slip, an insensitivity. This was intentional provoking, intentional mocking, intentionally trying to make Hannah feel worthless. And Elkanah, as you, as you listen to, read about this story, if you listen to any preacher, Elkanah gets picked on a lot here for, for this, and, and probably rightly so. But again, this wasn't just a one-time thing. It says it's in this section where it's saying this happens year after year. So they go to, to sacrifice, they're eating, and in that time, that's, that's one of the times when Peninnah chooses to poke, chooses to prod, chooses to point out Hannah's infertility. 
and she is weeping. She's deeply hurt. She's not hungry. She's in distress. And, and Elkanah, over and over again, it seems like, would say, like, come on, Hannah, get over it. Why are you sad? Your life's not that bad. You've got me. Am I not better to you than, than ten sons? And, and you can just read into this some of the insensitivities. He's probably trying to help, trying to encourage, trying to point out some of the good things that she has. But, but Hannah not receiving the kind of care that she needs there. And then she goes to, on, on one occasion it says, she goes and, and she's, she's praying. She's pouring out her heart to the Lord. She, she vows to God, God, if you just give me a son, I will give him to you. This isn't, this isn't some kind of an empty, if you make me rich, I'll you know, give a little bit of money to people around me. This is, this, this is, she's, she's essentially saying the very thing that I thought I needed, God, I'm willing to give that to you. If you provide me a son, I won't cling to him. I will give him to you. This, this Nazarite vow, you can read about it in Numbers where, where she says he's not going to cut his hair. She's, she's dedicating her future son, if the Lord chooses to give her one to God and says he'll, he'll live there permanently. And we'll see the depth of that sacrifice as we get a little further in the story. But she's there and she's, she's pouring out her heart to God and, and probably in the privacy of this moment and what she's praying about, it says that she's, she's not praying out loud, but but in her heart, and she's weeping, and her lips are moving, and Eli looks at her and thinks, oh, okay, another drunk woman here who's just maybe had a little too much at this sacrifice meal, and so he kind of dismisses Hannah, says, how long are you going to stay drunk? And she, so again, her, her rival, her husband, her high priest, all, no, no one is supporting Hannah through this. And she says, no, I'm in the depth of anguish. Let's just kind of glance through descriptions of how this is affecting her. Verse, verse 7 again, it says, year after year she was taunted. Verse 10 says, she was deeply hurt. She prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Verse 15, she says, I'm a woman with a broken heart. I'm pouring out my heart before the Lord. I'm praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. She's, she is in agony here. It's just helpful for us to back up from this story and recognize that even though our circumstances, your circumstances, my circumstances may be different from hers, God sees us. He hears us in our pain. He, he wants us to do this, to cry out to him in our anguish. Not to keep it to ourselves, not to think that we can handle this ourselves. God's not looking at us thinking, oh, you're just overreacting. Get over it. No, he invites us to cry out to him and he sees us. Even if no one else sees you, even if no one else understands, no one else gets what you're going through, he does and he wants you to pour your heart out to him in faith. We see her faith in the way that she offers this vow. Like I said, the very thing that she thought would make her happy, there seems to be some kind of a shift here where she says, God, I, if, if you provide that, I'll give him to you. I won't cling to him. 
And as Eli understands a little more of what's going on, and he, he says to, you, to her, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. I don't know whether Hannah knew for sure this would happen, uh, whether Eli is just saying, like, I might say to someone, or you might say to someone, oh, I, I hope God answers your request. May the Lord answer your request. He may have been speaking a little more prophetically here, but, but still, in this moment, Hannah's not pregnant. She doesn't know for sure that God is going to answer this request in the way that she's desiring, but yet it says she got up, she went on her way, she ate, and no longer looked despondent. There's a faith that was growing in her. Let's read verses 19 through 28. We'll see that God provides a son for Hannah and for his people. Not just for Hannah. We're seeing there's a bigger story that's going on here. Verse 19. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. And then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah. And the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel because he said, I requested him, she said, I requested him from the Lord. When Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go. She explained to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband, Elkanah, replied, Do what you think is best. Stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she'd weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, a half bushel of flour, and a clay jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood here praying beside you to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he worshiped the Lord there. God delights in reversals of fortune, in redemption stories, and in stories that look hopeless, that look like they lead to despair, and, and he provides a way. He's a way maker, a miracle worker, a promise keeper. And here in this story for Hannah, there is a great redemption. There is a great answer. There's a great reversal but again, if you were reading this story when it was first written, what you're also seeing here is not just Hannah's reversal, but this turning point in, in the history of God's people as he's providing an answer in a time that looked dark. You, you would have known who Samuel was. You would have heard stories of Samuel growing up. And so now you're reading some of his origin story, his, his background of how did God take us from this time of moral depravity of the judges and, and get us to be in this time where there's this promised king 
Maybe you're living in the time when the kings were pretty bad. The kings weren't following the Lord. Or, or maybe you were in the time even of exile and you're reading this and you're saying, okay, back then, God was faithful to his promises. They're, they're, he did lead us to a promised king. Even, and even though that king failed, maybe he's still going to send a Messiah. You're clinging to faith that he's still going to, to be faithful. Just like he was then, he's going to do it again. See that a couple applications that we might wrongly take from this passage. I don't want you, if you have a two or three year old, to drop him off here and, and think that pastors are going to raise him up, um, whether you vowed it or not. Um, whether you're a three-year-old, you want them in your home still, or it's one of those days when you're thinking maybe dedicating them to the Lord would be a good path. Uh, that's not what this is telling us to do. It's also not telling us that if we just pray like Hannah prayed, if we just make promises to God, then we're going to get whatever we ask him for. Um, that's not the point of the story. This is a unique story. This isn't, this isn't the way. And many, many throughout history have prayed for children, and God hasn't answered that request in the way that you desire. Many have, have begged God for other redemptions, for other breakthroughs, for other ways out. And we're reminded even of the story of Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who, who also, like Hannah, was deeply distressed. In Mark 14, the, the, as, he's, as he's contemplating this, his crucifixion that was coming, as he would bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world, in Mark 14 it says he was deeply grieved to the point of death. And he was asking God, the Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But then what's he say next? He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will. And this is, this is how we're taught to pray. And this is how we're taught to pray, even when God's answer isn't the answer that we were hoping for. And, and this is what probably Hannah even got to this place where she was able to say, I desperately want a son but God, I have peace right now, even, even if you don't give it, even if you don't give it in the way that I'm hoping, even if I have to give him back to you, God, you are what I need. You are my portion. You satisfy my soul. You're what I desperately need, even more than a child. We're gonna see that some in the way that she prays. This is after she brings Samuel, verse, verse 28 of chapter 1 ends by saying, then he worshiped the Lord there. This is how we know that a big part of this story is not just that a son's provided for Hannah. This is, this is showing, oh, there's a worshiper here who's in the Lord's house, who is ready to lead this turning point of God's people. There's, there, there's, there's some light here in this story as, as the word of the Lord is about to return to his people, as Samuel is here and he's going to lead his people back toward Yahweh. He's going to lead his people through some of the deliverance of the Philistines, lead his people toward this time of a king. But Hannah here, 
imagine the, the grief. You, you finally have a son, and now you're taking him to Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. We're going to read about these scoundrels, I think some, some of the translations use for them. Read about these guys. Think about dropping off your two- or, or three-year-old and seeing them once or twice a year. But here's Hannah's prayer. She rejoices. She praises God for who he is, what he's done, what he promises to do. Chapter 2, verse 1, Hannah prayed, My heart, what? Rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies. Because, why? I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. Actions are weighed by him. Verses 4 through 8 here, we see this poetic language of the way that in God's kingdom he brings reversals. He exalts the lowly. Brings down the proud in the world's eyes. Verse 4 says, The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones. But the wicked perish in darkness. Look at this line. It says, for, the, for a person does not prevail by his own strength. It's not by might. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So now we're, we're looking future, and she says, He will give power to His king. He will lift up the horn of His anointed. And then Elkanah went home to Ramah. But the boy, Samuel, served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. God will sustain you with peace, with joy. In the middle of your pain, in the middle of your hardness, in the, in the middle of your difficulty and trial and grief, here Hannah is, has just given her son and probably about to leave him permanently, and yet she rejoices. She finds peace. She finds joy. Later we're going to see that she, she does have more children, but at this point she doesn't know that. Most likely, she doesn't know what God is going to do, but she rejoices in the middle of that pain by recalling to her mind who God is, what he's like, what he's done, and then what he's promised to do. This is what we need to do as well, where she was able to say, God, there is no one like you. There is no other God. There is nothing else I need, not even a son, not even a child. That's, that is not my God. 
There is no other rock besides you. There's nothing else to lean on. There is no other foundation. There's, there's nothing else that can st- sustain me through this pain except you, God. There is no other God. And then she, she, she talks about these reversals that, that God does. And these, these aren't promises, like I said, that in every case in this life that That if you're struggling, okay, you're going to in this life enjoy peace and prosperity and riches and wealth and and health. But there's this description here of what your God is like. It sounds like what Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, those beatitudes, those blesseds where he says those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are persecuted for and insulted and when others say things falsely against you for, for Christ's sake, those who in the eyes of the world are lowly, are nothing, they're going to receive God's blessing. If they wait on him, if they draw near to him, if they draw near to his presence, if you draw near to his presence, he does delight sometimes in this life, in your circumstances right now, sometimes he does provide breakthroughs. He does turn those stories around. He delights in taking those that the world looks on and despises and thinks you're nothing because of who you are, because of your inabilities, because of your disabilities, because of prejudices against you. Maybe you're a child here and you're, you're really young and you feel like, I can't do anything for the Lord. God, God doesn't see us like that. He sees you. He doesn't need us like that. He doesn't need your strength, your might, your, all of your talents. What he needs is for you to draw near to him, to depend on him, to, to lean on him in faith. And he delights in using people just like that to do great things for him in his glory. And even if your story here in this life doesn't turn around in the way that you want, you know, because of what he has promised in the future, that it will. That eternity is coming. The the little rescues that we see, the little salvation. She says in in verse 1 that she's rejoicing in the Lord's salvation. She might not have been thinking of all of the the end times and the way that she'll be glorified and be with the Lord in heaven. She might have been thinking of this little salvation here, this little rescue here, but all of those little salvations point to his greater salvation. And that's what she gets to at the end where she connects these words of king and anointed one. That word anointed one is is the word Messiah or in the New Testament, it's the word Christ and and she might not have been thinking of, she wasn't thinking of Jesus. She, she was thinking, there's a promised one that's coming. And she might have thought it was Samuel. Or, or, or later on, they might have thought it was David. Or they, there's all these different ones that, that kind of hinted at and, and, and foretold and were pointing toward the greater promised one, the greater king that would come. But now we know the end of the story. We, we know how this story ends. And so we look back on this and, and we can be strengthened in our faith by recalling to our minds who God is, what he's like, what he's done, and what he will do. As we finish, just calling to our minds again some of the applications for us from this passage. First, seeing that God sees you. He hears you. 
in your anguish, and he invites you to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. He, he desires that you will cry out to him in your anguish. Cry out to him in faith. He hears you. God delights in reversals and, and redemption. And so patiently, humbly wait on him. Don't, don't look to numb your pain with other gods, with, with other crutches. Wait on him. Wait on his timing. See what he will do. Know that he can bring reversals to your circumstances in this life. But if he doesn't, there is a great reversal coming in your future. If you, if you trust in him, if you follow him. But, but in your pain, in your difficulty, God will sustain you and give you joy and peace it happens at the same time. You're, you're both grieving but also clinging to peace and joy because you're calling to your mind. This is what you can actively do. What's it like to wait on God, to trust in him? Well, here's, here's something you can do. Call to your mind who he is. There is no God besides him. What he is like, these redemption stories in the Bible. And then, and then recall to your mind what he has promised that he will do. That there is a Savior who now has come and who will come again and make all things new. Hannah experienced a high priest who didn't sympathize very well with her weaknesses. Um, kind of brushed her off. Thought she was drunk. Um, Hebrews 4 tells us we don't have a high priest like that who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in all points was tempted like we are, yet without sin. And the writer of Hebrews then says, okay, so because of that, because Jesus endured suffering, endured sorrow, endured temptation, draw near to him. Here's what we're called to do. What Hannah did to draw near to the throne of grace, to cry out to him in prayer. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. This is Matthew 11. I will give you rest. He, he, in, he is the, the man of sorrows, the suffering servant that Isaiah 53 talks about, where it says that he's acquainted with grief. He's familiar with suffering, familiar with pain. He was despised. He himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. This is what Jesus did when he came for us. He endured the kind of pain and suffering and temptation, yet he did it without sin so that we can cast our cares on him, knowing then that he was crushed for our sins so that he could purchase our peace with God. The suffering that, that Hannah experienced, nothing compared to the suffering that Jesus experienced for us. So we look to him as the man of sorrows. He, he, he wasn't just coming as the conquering king. He'll do that. But first he came as the sufferer as the one who endured all of this in our place, not because he deserved it, but in our place so we can with confidence cry out to him, knowing that he hears. Let your despair, your trials, your difficulties, 
drive you to deeper trust in God, believing that he will do what he says he will do, that even when you don't feel it, he is working. Let me pray for us.